ESV. It's going to be up there in a minute. <laughs> he was on point there. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings, he says. He says, count it all joy, in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation, exaltation and the rich man his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, falls, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So it is with the rich man, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In verse 12 here, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a couple of key words that we're going to, to focus on. I'm going to grab a water while I, while I talk here. <laughs> and one of those that we're going to land on is steadfastness. We're going to land on trials and steadfastness and wisdom. There are three things I feel like we, that really jump out here in, in this text to me as, I, as I've read it and began to break it down. But I, I like to go, as you all know, kind of word by word, line by line. So... The first thing is that I see here is James identifies himself. He says, James, a servant of God. So I asked the question, who is James? So as I began to uh, work through that, and actually Robert and I were talking, a couple of us were talking on Friday night, Robert uh, Turner and I, uh, a couple of things came out in that. It says that one, that James was the brother of Jesus, right? Um, but we don't ever really hear, we don't hear much about James in the, in the childhood or the, a, a large portion of Jesus' early life. Um, he just, he's kind of like a lot of or other, Jesus' other siblings. He, they're just not mentioned. But we do have it in Matthew uh, thirteen fifty five that he was a brother. It says, uh, is not this, the, in reference to Jesus, is not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we see that he had siblings, right? And that, uh, that James is one of those. We also know that he wasn't, at, at some point in his life or early on or later on uh, into his adulthood, that James wasn't a believer or a disciple of Jesus. So we see in John 7, 2 through 5, he says, uh, John says, Now Jesus, now, now the Jews, uh, the Jews' feast of the booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go. Go to Judea. That your disciples may see your works, that, that, that see your works that you are doing. For no one works in a secret. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you if you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
And verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So, one we, that's referenced here in verse uh, 3 is that the, the brother says, your disciples. Not, hey, I'm one of your disciples. But we're going to see that G- James is eventually one of Jesus' disciples. But in, this, in that moment, and this was, I mean, a, a short time before Jesus is um, brought uh, or sold for silver, right? And then goes and we, we see the, the, the gift of Christ uh, very quickly after this, that his death and resurrection or his trial, his death and his resurrection. So we see that, you know, that's what we see around that James at this point, he is not a follower, right? He's, hey, these are your disciples. You go with be with them and go make a name for yourself. We also see that, that, that sometime between the feast and the uh, booths and Jesus' resurrection, that, Jesus, that James got the revelation of who Jesus was, right? Can you imagine that here his brothers are growing up with him, right? And they have no, or maybe they have an awareness, but there's not an acceptance of who Jesus is. So he, he's, that's, where, that's where James is. But we do know that, as I'm going to point out in another scripture here, that he obviously does come. And follow, come to, to the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, he says in first, it says in first Corinthians fifteen seven, Paul says, "Then he appeared to James, oh, yep, appeared to James, then to all the apostles." So I kind of jumped ahead there. Paul on or Saul on his road to Damascus has this encounter with Christ, right? And it says that after that. He went and he, he, he has about a, a three years that he's away from everybody. But when he comes back and he engages the apostles, he, makes him, he comes and submits himself to Peter and to James. And that James there in 1 Corinthians that Paul's referencing is James, the, the brother of Christ. So we see that he is there. And he is now given his, he's, he's got a hold of the truth, right? So it says that we know that James, and, we also know that James in Jerusalem, a part is also part of the upper room gathering at the, at, the day, at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given. So we see that in uh, Acts 1-7. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we believe, I'd say that James was there. James is still in Jerusalem. And, uh, we, just, we covered that with Paul. We also see that he is, when the Jerusalem council convenes, James is the apparent chairman of the meeting, as we see in Acts. We see him show up. Uh, he's called, he's one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and he's called one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. So we see that James has got something. He got a hold of something, right? So as we get into the book of James, we can acknowledge that what James has to say is important. He is, uh, he's a follower of Christ. He's a disciple of Christ. He's physically the, the half brother of, of Jesus. And as he starts out in, in this, he says, I'm James. I'm a, I'm a servant of God. And he describes as he's referring to his brother and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he has gotten a hold of the deity of, of, of who Jesus is. And he is saying, he's my Lord, right? There's something there that we need to embrace as we've talked about before. Are owning the reality that Jesus is also our Lord, right? So, and when he says a servant, he's he's saying, "Hey, I'm a servant. Who am I serving of? I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ." So, a servant is one who serves or fulfills 
the desires and commands of another who is authoritatively over them. So as we think about lordship, do we treat Jesus that way? Do we engage that? Do we say, hey, not just in word only, you're the Lord of my life, but is there action? Is there, am I living my life in such a way that people could say, that guy's a servant of the Lord? Or is he a servant of himself? Or is he a, a man of position that's looking for others just to serve him? Right? We live in a very narcissistic world today that people are, aspire to be the lords of their own life, to the masters of their own destiny. Right? But that's not what we're called to, and this is not what James is inviting us to, and it's clearly not what James is identifying himself as. So he says, the ultimate, uh, he's a servant of God, and who is God? He's the ultimate authority over all. He's the one whom no one that has no beginning and has no end. He's the creator of all creation. He's the source of our existence. I think there's so many times when we get into really kind of trying to wrap our mind around who God is, we have this tendency to make God small to kind of paint pictures of that he's like somehow, some way he's a created being like us, right? And he's not. Clearly he's not. It says in Genesis, before there was, there was God. And it's that God that we get to have relationship with. That, that God who speaks and darkness and light are separated, right? That uh, water's part, water's created. <laughs> this God, that's the God that we get to have relationship with. And James is saying here, I'm a servant of his. And he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, who is and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Also, who is Jesus? He's the part of the, the, the part of the three part of, parts of the Godhead, right? We've got the father, the son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. He's also the one who redeemed us back unto God through his sinless life on earth, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. So here a couple of weeks ago, we went down this of who Jesus is and what, why we needed a savior, right? And Jesus is that one. So that's who, Jesus, that's who Paul is, or James is saying that he's submitted to, that he, is, he has found the one. I was living with him all along, you know. Uh, I wonder if James ever said, oh, yeah, I used to give him a noogie. <laughs> right? Um, if you've, I, I come, I've come from a family of four boys and there was lots of wrestling, lots of, you know, fun, physical activities. Can you imagine wrestling Jesus? <laughs> so I think that James and his brothers probably have some fond memories of that. Well, he could have really put a hurt on us, right? <laughs> so it says also in here, he goes on to, and he says, who is he writing this to? He's writing this letter to the 12 tribes in dispersion, right? Dispersion scattered is the word that that, what that is. To the 12 tribes, which are, we see in the Old Testament, it says the 12 tribes refer to the, as the Jewish people. They are the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. And I'm not going to go through all their names, but each of their names represents a different tribe. These descendants of these 12 brothers are the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. It says, and they, I wrote out, and they make up the chosen people, the family of God. And these are the people that we, Gentiles, I don't know of any purely Jewish people here that are grafted into, right? We are the part of the family of God that we've been grafted into, if you will, the collection of these 12 tribes. So he says, greetings, right? He writes this letter and he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And greetings, I've got a message for you. So in this greetings, we just say, hey, Hopefully, right, greetings, good news. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, 
when you meet various tri- trials of various kinds. Count it, right? We, we, well, Rod's not in here, but Rod's an accountant. We've got people that play with numbers all the time. Mr. Irby himself, I'm sure, plays with numbers all the time. Um, there's a value in counting, right? In assessing what we have, what we're giving. And he's saying, count it all joy. So look at it, assess it, and then apply joy to what you're doing. And what is the doing that he's saying here? Or who's he saying it to? My brothers. My brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? My brothers and sisters that identify as the 12 tribes. Because he's in Jerusalem. So the, the, the people that are in Jerusalem here are primarily Jewish. So he is where Paul was sent. The smart, I said a couple of weeks ago, Paul, the guy who knew the Torah, right, who was a student and a Pharisee, was sent to the Gentiles. And then the other uh, disciples were sent to the, the, to the Jews. So he is writing a letter primarily to the Jews. So he says he's referring to them as his brothers. And those brothers are those that are in the faith. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 45 through 50, he says, Who are my mother and my brother? Those who do the will of my father. So when he's saying brothers here, he's not just identifying his biological brothers. He's identifying those that are in the faith with me. Those who are doing what, my, what, our, what our Lord wants us to do. Those that are servants in the same household. Right? That's us. So that's who he's writing here to. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I don't know about you guys. I don't get really excited about trials. No? None of us. So... And I, so I look up the word for a trial. It says to make strenuous or violent efforts in the face of difficulties or opposition. That's what trials are. To make strenuous or violent efforts in the face of difficulties or opposition. As we go through trials, and as we see this here, it's not just trials for trial's sake. These trials that we're going we're gonna to dig into here that he's referring to are they're building something in us. There's a purpose in them, right? I have not, but I know of, uh, I've got siblings. I've got three brothers that went to the military, and I know how out of shape they went in, and I know how in shape they came back, how square, how uh, immature they were in their thinking and in their disciplines when they went in, and how six to 12 weeks later, depending on which branch they went in, they came back very squared away, almost like a personality change. Like I've often referenced a friend of mine about a friend of mine in high school that he was this shapely, uh, funny, jovial guy um, all throughout high school, and he took off to the Marines. And when he came back, he came back a jarhead. <laughs> that's what that's what they call each other. He came back, and he had this this whole this all this laughter, this joy, this kind of flightiness of life was gone. So he did, he does still have a sense of humor. It didn't, it didn't wreck him, but there was this seriousness about life that he came back to, with. There was, they, they broke him down to build him back up into what the military wanted him to be, right? What the Marines wanted him to be. So, and in the same way, these trials here that were, were being referenced here, that's what they are. They're breaking us down. They're breaking the flesh out of us. They're breaking 
there, you know, you, scripture talks about cutting back pruning so that more fruit can produce, right? Not all things, not all these trials are to just rid the, 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 the rot out of it. Sometimes there's good things that God wants to make better, right? To add strength, muscle on top of muscle, stronger muscles, right? A, a strength that can withstand, or we're going to get to steadfast, we can withstand what comes our way. And what comes our way for a purpose. So it's count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith. These trials, they're, they're meant to test our faith. Right? It's not just a, eh, that was difficult. These trials are, they're pressing against the very fiber of our belief system. I don't know about you guys, but I, I've gotten into a few of those. God, are you really going to show up here? Is what I'm saying I believe in, what I'm rooted in, is it going to be found to be solid, true? Will it hold? Will the, will the vessel hold? Will it, you drop the ship in the water. Is it going to take on water or is it going to be buoyant? Is it going to hold? Is it, is it got integrity about it? And these trials are made with great intentionality. I believe that God allows these trials in our lives to test this, to build in us these things. And if we don't embrace that this is a reality and that God's in the midst of this, we can find ourselves in a different, as Cornell has referenced before, a different theology, right? That says, hey, if, if, if this can't, this has got to just, it's got to be the devil I'm under this attack. It's always something because I have this theology that expects it to all just be wonderful and perfect, right? I can't have sickness. I can't have need. I can't have conflict. Um, I'm supposed to have health and wealth, right? I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the religion of the, of, of, of the day, it seems like at times. But it's not, right? It's not the, it's not the religion, of, it's, not the, it's not the message of Jesus and it's not the message of his, his disciples. It's not the message of James here. So it says it's for the testing of your faith. And what is testing? Testing is to, to take measures to check the quality, performance, and reliability of something, especially before putting it into widespread use or practice. I've got to believe that every company that has a product, that they do some R&D, they research and development, that they're going to test it before they're going to say, hey, we want to mass produce a million of these. Right? A little side note, when, we, when Christy and Ellen and Bethany were getting their Toyotas here maybe a little over a year ago. I was doing some research on Toyotas. And a really neat thing popped up about something that's unique to Toyota that I don't know or didn't see that was true of any other car manufacturer. When a problem is found uh, with, with the Toyota products, they don't wait till the next generation, which is four years for a car, to, uh, to address that issue. The next, they literally go into assembly, they, they find a solution, and they make the adjustment in assembly as soon as possible so that the next cars, the year two of that generation, year three, and by the time you get to year four of that generation of car, you found a perfect car or as close as they can do to a perfect car. One, I love that. It was a real motivator for me. I go, hey, my next car, I might want a third or fourth year generation Toyota. Guess what? That goes on with us too. He didn't say, hey, the Lord didn't say, hey, I'll do that with your kids and your grandkids, the next generation. No, no, no. He is constantly doing that in us. These trials are to perfect us. 
right? As we're going to come to the, we're going to actually come to the, that word and some words like that here. For the testing of your faith. Faith, the foundation of our relationship with God, right? So this testing of the very fiber, the very foundation of what we believe or what we say we believe, right? And we, in these trials, we find out, is, is this a fair weather Christianity or is this a Christianity that I'm willing to go to the mat for? Am I willing to, to die as we see our, those in the, that have gone before us that they died in believing, sometimes not receiving, right? But they didn't say, well, it didn't happen in my lifetime or it didn't happen the way that I thought it was going to, so I'm done with it. No, died believing, right? Died with expectation and not just that. And it's not just for, hey, one day we're going to get it, but these testings and God shows up then, right? He shows himself faithful in our situations, in our trials, and we're built up in that. And so the next trial, we've got more confidence to step back out because we say, hey, he's been faithful. He's been faithful. But these trials, they test that. So this faith, uh, this faith is the foundation of a relationship with God. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Or as Hebrews 1 puts it, Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we're just, we're taking God at his word. We're in his word and we're taking him in his word. When he speaks by his spirit to us, we confirm what he's saying, right? We go back to the word when he, he drops, um, I want you to do this. And we go, well, that sounds crazy. Is there any documentation of him doing this or evidence of this in the, in the New Testament that he, or in, in his word, so I can step out of that. So we use the word to guard us and guide us against bad theology, right? And getting off into all kinds of, of foolishness. But when we get that, then we step out in faith in that and say, God, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I trust you. I'm going to believe that you're going to do this. I know that all of us are, we, because of we're, we're people of faith, we all have trials in our lives right now that we're walking through with expectation, right? Whether it's a, whether it's the salvation of a loved one, whether it's a, a sickness, a healing, a, a financial need that we have, a just feeling more and walking more intimately with the Lord, the restoration of a relationship. We all have these trials, and guess what? We're going to continue to have these trials as long as we have breath because we don't outgrow these trials. They just, we, a faith is built in us, and we step that out, and then we move off into that next stage of faith, if you will, right? And we go from an infancy of kind of struggling. Remember when you were, well, we probably don't remember crawling, but we were like barely could get, get around, right? To crawling, to wobbling, to walking. And we get stronger and stronger at it, right? And we, we have more confidence in it because, hey, these legs have been working for me for 50 years now, so I can do that. But there was a day, right? Okay, it wasn't that bad. But, but there's a place that we get into that, right? Where we it's kind of a newness to us, and then we get to where we mature in it, and we're constantly maturing. We're constantly being challenged by trials to mature, and we're, as we're maturing as disciples, we're also disciples, right? So in my maturity, I'm reaching back, and I'm encouraging others in their maturity, in their discipleship, in their faith, right? We do so much of our of counseling that we do with Undivided is that. It's being able to step in someone's situation. They're so deep into the forest that they can't see trees and say, hey, I'm not in the forest with you. Let me tell you this aerial view. Let me remind you of what God's word says. Let's partner with God, stand on his word and see what God wants to do, right? That's what we're called to do. 
But we never outgrow that. We've got, as Heather was asking this morning, if people have married 30 years and 40 years and 50 years, right? We always need that next generation, those that have gone further than we have to speak into us. Because for us, this is the first time I've seen this. So I can ask someone who's been married 30 years, hey, what should I expect? Right? I know there was a time, I don't, I don't know my biological dad, but I wrote him a letter to, and said, hey, We've kind of missed that window of growing up with you as my, you know, my dad, me sitting on your lap or anything. Those words were not in my letter, but that's the the idea that I had. But there's some things that I'd like to know about myself. Or there's some health issues I need to prepare for. Do we have a, do the, does my DNA, to your knowledge, do we live to 100? Or do I need to go, ooh, unless God shows up, our DNA kind of drops at 70. So do I need to be preparing for that? Are there some things? And I, I sent him part of this, this letter that I sent him was a goofy letter too. I said, hey, I'd like to know, I'd like to have a current picture of you. And you know why I asked for a current picture? Because I wanted to find out if this right here is as good as it gets. <laughs> or I want to go, hey, honey, I'm like a fine wine. It's only going to get better with time. Or I'm going to say, honey, I'm sorry. Let's get some family photos now. <laughs> But there's a place for us to be able to look forward and knowing that we're never, we're never going to outgrow this. God, with great intentionality, is constantly and consistently faithfully building the character and the attributes of Jesus Christ in us. He's going to do it. He's doing it. And that's what we signed up for. And if you didn't know that's what you signed up for, we should talk about your relationship with him or maybe reassess what you signed up for. So if you've got a different gospel, let's talk about it. Because this is what he's called us to. And we can count it all joy when we find ourselves in these trials because God's in the midst of them. So it says, he says, let me get back up here into here. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, it says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness. That sounded pretty cool. (laughs) Steadfastness, just that word, true, faithful, solid of substance, integrity. That it will... It's solid, right? It's, it's a pillar. You know, the, James, the, the author of this, that was called a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. He was solid. He didn't waver in his beliefs against various uh, trials or people after him, right? It wasn't a popular thing to be a, a follower of the way in his day. And guess what we can attest to also? It's not very popular to be a follower of the way today either, right? In a world where everyone, you can serve anyone and everything but Jesus, right? And we can, I'll go here, we can, we're, people are celebrating, shaking their fist at God and saying, hey, you got it so wrong, you don't even, you even got my gender wrong, right? I'm a man trapped in a girl's body, or I'm a girl trapped in a man's body, or I'm a they, <laughs> right? Rather than I am who God says I am, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, Right, it's, we can say a lot of we can say all of that, but you can't say Jesus, right? You can't say he's the one true way, the only way to God. 
But guess what? We can. But we also know that when we do, there's a trial coming. Right? There's conflict coming. But guess what? That pillar holds because it's true. Right? It wasn't popular in Jesus' day and it's not popular today. But we're not winning a popularity contest. Right? We're going to love people enough to tell them the truth. Right? I know that's what I want. So we want this steadfastness to be there in us. It's got to be in us, right? The question is, do I have an appetite for that? And it says, let steadfastness have its full effect. To remain steadfast or unmovable, we have to know the word of God. We have to know it and know that we know it, right? It can't just be the, hey, I read that sometimes or I've said the sinner's prayer, I'm good, it's we have to know it really to the point that we have an answer for it when people question it, right? Because if, the, if there's anything going on right now, people are asking today, is that true? Right? Where darkness is, light shines all the brighter. And guess what? We're in dark days. This light shines. Are we shining? Do we know the truth? And is that truth, one, setting us free? Or are we walking, living, talking that truth to be instruments of the Lord to be a, to partner with him for others to be set free. That's the quest. I mean, that's, that's, that's the aim. That's the call of the great commission. So second Timothy two fifteen says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. To actually, to accurately handle the word of truth, we must not read the Bible only, but we must allow it to become a part of us. Its truth should be so penetrated in our minds and our hearts that it shapes our thinking and our actions. It becomes the very fibers of who we are. Right? We don't, in a world where we live very um, compartmentalized, well, well, yeah, I, I, I believe that I work there. I mean, that's my church I, as me. I, oh, I work there, but I don't know about all their theology, right? I, we, we try to kind of be all things to all people instead of, hey, this is who I am. And if I'm in a room like this where I'm light with other light, maybe I don't shine so bright because we're all bright. I go, huh, okay. But guess what? I'm also living that same walk out there where it's dark, right? When we're having to say, Sometimes hurtful things, but true things to people because we see them hurting, right? And they're asking. One of our favorite, one of my favorite statements in counseling is not not all hurt is harm. That can I love someone enough to hurt them knowing that I'm not harming them? I love them enough to tell them the truth and maybe walk them into that truth. Assess or analyze that situation as they, that they find themselves in their own trial and show them where Jesus is in that or where they could invite Jesus to that. Knowing that there's going to be conflict. They may go, oh, you're coming at me with all that religion again. No, I'm not. I'm really inviting you into a relationship, right? And for us here, we're reminding each other and encouraging each other of the faith that we profess. So that's what James is inviting us to here. He's saying, let this testing of your face, these trials do such a work in you that you're solid and that in every environment you can live this out. And we can't do it alone. We've got to do it in relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've got to do it in relationship with each other. None of us are an island. 
Right? It's not just happen chance that Jesus had disciples. Right? Even when he went to pray, right? He went and he took three of them with him. Sure, they were prayerfully disappointing, but he took them anyway, right? <laughs> his aim wasn't just to do that with them. He, his aim was he was communing with the Father, right? And he was actually, I believe, inviting them in to see what that relation looked like with him and the Father. So it says, that you may be perfect. So there is an aim for these trials. It's that there's a perfection being built in us. What is perfection? It's having all the required or desired elements or qualities or characteristics. Or it's as good as, as earthly, in this case, heavenly possible. But in, in products or things of the earth, earthly possible, right? It's, it's pure gold, right? It's the best. It's perfect. So that that's what God is developing in us. And that it says when we get to that point, and there is a place that we're going to get to that point. It says that, it says, I'm sorry, that you may be perfect and complete to have all the necessary or appropriate parts to be whole. That's that picture of completeness. It's whole. And it's not that, hey, I've got enough money, everything is perfect. It's not that I have enough of this or that. That, I'm, that it's now perfect and whole. It's that I've matured in my walk with the Lord. As we, I'm getting ahead of myself there. The last part of that, that verse there, verse 4 is, you may be perfect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're going to find ourselves, we're always in the place where it may appear in the natural that we're lacking. Right? The bill is always more than you think it's going to be, right? The time together is always the, we run out of clock before we run out of things to say or fellowship, right? There's, there's constantly this, this place of lack or there, this requires more strength, more of something. But not in this place that James is inviting us to and challenging us with here. Because it's not that we have, hey, I've got enough money in the account, I've got enough of this or enough of that. That we're so walking so intimately with the one that does that whatever my situation is, he's showing up in it because I'm there in obedience. I'm not putting my faith in my bank account. I'm not putting my faith in my health. I'm not putting my faith in my youthfulness. Not mine. I put a lot of it in theirs. Hey, kids, could you dig that hole for me? <laughs> um, but we're not putting our, our faith in these things that will disappoint, disappoint or can run out, right? Because no matter how much money you have, you can run out of it. No matter how much strength you have, as we spend it, we wear, it wears down, right? Time is the great commodity. We think sometimes, I know in my youth, it was like, just make enough money, make enough of this. And what I found out is that time is the great commodity, right? I'm not promised another breath. I'm not promised another day. As I've gotten older and I look back at my, my young life, I go, wow, I gave my youth away and my strength away for so little, Wow, all that energy that I had, I literally just, I let someone put a dollar figure on it and I sold it. And I don't begrudge that. There's things that I learned in the midst of that. But that's a reality. The things that I could do at 18, I can't do at 50. Or they cost me a little bit more to do it. I just asked Cornell after volleyball. <laughs> okay, sorry Cornell. <laughs> I'm sure he is. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get that on Tuesday or Wednesday. 
But where God is inviting us and where James is writing to us here is there's this completeness, this lacking in nothing. Not because we possess all these tangible things, but we have something that's intangible, something that's got an eternity value to it. That we're walking that out. We're in that place of relationship. So no matter what the trial, right? If we're in the boat, we're going across the, gal- the, the, the sea and the storm comes, whatever that storm is our life, that we can be down in the boat resting with Jesus. Right? Saying, hey, I'm with the one who calms storms. Storms are still going to come. We're, we're guaranteed that, right? That's what these trials are. But we're willing and able to go there and rest. And say, God, I know you've got this. This isn't my storm. This is your storm. I don't know what you're doing here, but I know you're doing something. You've been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful. And in the midst of this trial, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be faithful. And guess what? Sometimes that faithfulness, it hurts us. Right? This temporal body, this flesh, it hurts. Sometimes he says, hey, go serve this guy. I think of Jim's owner. He, he gets up at the crack of dawn five days a week, but he goes and he works on my car with me in the evenings, right? He's already done eight or 10 hours and done the, the hour drive each way, but he makes that investment in me. It costs him something, right? He's got a new bride. He goes, wow, well, hang out with Johnny or hang out with my new bride. Hmm. <laughs> right? But there's, there's a cost to that, but it's worth it. I hope it's worth it. I know that it's worth it, right? Because I know when we get together, what comes out of our mouth, I know how we both leave there encouraged. There's a strength being built in us when we're doing that, but Heather's car is a trial. (laughs) Not Heather. Heather's car is a trial. (laughs) But we need to grasp this. We need to accept this, embrace this, and be looking instead of wanting to throw in the towel or go into avoidance or go into what's the word um, what is well you can go into rebellion absolutely um, I'm thinking of the word where we just kind of numb out right? we go into this, this place of I'm going to go play a game right? I got some bad news I'll just go play a game or as Cornell referenced last week and I'll say men and women but specifically men going into porn, right? We go into these places where we can just numb out and you go get the dopamine that is released as we, we see these images. And we're, we're not dealing with the situation in truth, right? We're, we're, we're in avoidance. We're in, I'm going to numb out and act like that's not going on instead of saying, hey, God, where are you in the midst of this? I need you to show up here. I expect that you're going to show up here. And it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me wrestling wrestling with my doubt, wrestling with my, um, maybe it's wrestling in a a, a hard conversation, right? I really don't want to engage that. That's a tough place. That's a tough topic in my marriage. I don't want to talk about money, right? We've had that. We can find creative ways to avoid conversations about money. We'll do it over dinner. (laughs) Out to eat dinner. Yeah, never works, but we do it. We've done it. But we embrace this reality of the trial and we know that there's a purpose for the trial. We accept it and we count it joy so that when we have trials, like he starts out here, that we go, oh my goodness, thank you for this trial because I know you're building something. 
I think of my brothers, again, back to that picture of boot camp. I, don't, I never hear about the fond memories they have of their drill sergeant. <laughs> but you know what? They're grateful for how squared away they are. I, I do know that because I've looked at my, I look at them and I go, hey, I see some things that were developed in you in the military that I don't possess at the same strength. Or what they got in six weeks or through a, a time investment that God used something else that seemed a lot harder and took a lot longer to develop in me. But I can see that God was doing something there. And I can count the trial. I'm, I'm, I'm exercising, I'm working on seeing God in the midst of that and celebrating that. God, I do count it joy. I am grateful for Heather's car breaking down. I'm thankful for my house and the projects that still need to be done there. I'm thankful for these relational challenges that I have with my family. Not this family, my extended family. This family's perfect. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I see that and I go for that. We see that and we should go for that. And I would encourage you guys, ask me when I'm not here and I'm in that lowly place. Just, again, Jim out working on the car can say, hey, how's your marriage? And I go, oh, I'm struggling today. And him pouring back God's word in me or challenging me, right? So when I'm not so high on the joyful aspects of trial that I'm being reminded of these things and, hey, God's in the midst of this. And I can accept and embrace that. We're going to go to verse 5 here. If any man lacks wisdom, what is wisdom? You know, we, we hear that. I mean, that's a, that's a church word. I mean, that is, I mean, to be a Christian, you, you mean, that is, that's part of your new vocabulary, right? Even in the world, there, there's an earthly wisdom, but we don't typically use the word wisdom out in the uh, secular world that often. I came across this definition here. Wisdom is the ability to perceive the true nature of a situation and to implement the will of God in that situation. Wisdom is the practical application of God's truth to a specific situation. Wisdom is knowing what God wants to do and then doing it. Anyone here need wisdom like that? There's a whole lot to unpack there. So I found that wisdom is kind of, uh, in fact, I'm going to read this scripture here. Colossians 1, 9, and 10. There are three elements that I see in the word wisdom. I see knowledge. Let me get them in order. Understanding and righteousness. We see each of these words independent of each other in Scripture. But wisdom is the culmination, I believe, of all three of those words. Them all working together. So, knowledge is... This is, the know, this is knowing the truth, right? It is having the, the, the facts or the correct information about a situation. That's knowledge. It's information. It's here's what we're dealing with, right? We got that. Proverbs eighteen fifteen says, The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. The ear of the wise seeks it out. So knowledge is a good thing. We don't begrudge knowledge. We live in a world where we're... we're Knowledge is a commodity that's traded. Information is the, the greatest 
uh, one of the greatest commodities that is being bought and sold today. What's the purpose of Google? Information, right? So there is a value and a purpose for knowledge, but if it's just knowledge for knowledge's sake, or what do we do with that knowledge, right? We need wisdom to do, know what to do with the information. We would all agree that we need knowledge for our existence, right? I think of, just, again, just going back to we homeschool our kids. I don't want my kid to grow up and be 18 but have a fifth grade education, right? I want him to have the education, the character, the attributes that are needed for him to be a just an active contributing member of society. As a godly young man, I want him to have the character to, to be a contributor to an, a kingdom um, investor in, in the world that we live in, right? I want when people run into my kids that they go, that's a godly young man. That man must be a Christian. I want to get to know that kid's mom. She did great. <laughs> and dad. But that's our aim, right? We have, and it takes for them to, to grow in that. We've put edu- information in front of them, right? And we, one of the reasons that we homeschooled our kids is because there were some things that we didn't want our kids to, to have submit, put in front of them in, in the various uh, environments. I don't know how that is here in Oklahoma as much as when we were in Texas. They were doing sex education and crazy sex education, not just, hey, here's boys and girls and this is how this works at an early age. They were delivering all kinds of craziness, right? Foolishness, uh, the, the sin that Romans talks about. In the educa- and we said, hey, we don't want that for our kids. I, I, I think, well, I would say I want my 12-year-old to be 12 and I don't want to com- compete with a peer group for my kids' affections. So we, with great intentionality, homeschooled our kids and have created our put together and found environments that were best for them. But all this with the purpose of educating them, informing them, giving them the knowledge to be godly young men and well-educated young men and women to impact their, their, their world and their generation. So that's what we do with knowledge. The second thing is understanding. The second degree is to wisdom is understanding. Understanding is the ability to translate meaning from the facts. How frustrating would it be if you owned a business or Steve owned a business, but he couldn't interpret his, his, his business reports, right? The, his, his accounting department is pushing numbers at him and he's like, I don't know what these mean. I can't read a financial statement, right? That, that company would be in trouble, right? It's here are the facts. Now we have to be able to break those facts down. And what are these facts telling us? It's the ability to know the significance of the information. It's knowing what to do with the knowledge we have acquired, As we gain knowledge, we begin to understand more and more of what God would have us do in the unique trials and circumstances of our lives. Because everyone's circumstance, everyone's situation is a little different. We're all married, but our marriages all look a little different. Right? There's a a clear fabric and foundation of what those marriages look like because Christ is the center of them. But every, every husband and every wife, their relationship looks different. But with that information, we do something with that. How, how am I going to walk this out? God, how would you like me to walk this out in my marriage, in my business, in my relationship with my neighbors, in my relationship with my, my kids? And that third one is righteousness. 
That's the final ingredient here. This is applying what we know and understand to the specific situation. This is knowledge and understanding in action. This answers the question, what do I do? We need wisdom, right? And this all goes back to James. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We need wisdom, right? We're in these trials. God, I see that you're in the midst of this trial. What do you want me to do here in this situation? What would serve you? What would develop me? What do you want to develop in me? And how can I submit to that? So we need righteousness in that. You know what God's word says. That's the knowledge. And you have a grasp of what you need to do. That's the understanding. But now it's the time to, to actually do what you understand. That action step is righteousness. It's an, it's an act of righteousness that we do. By righteousness, I mean doing what is right. So I can't just take the information I can't just take the understanding, mix those two together and go, yeah, I know everything says the stock market's going to crash, but I'm going to go ahead and buy anyway, <laughs> right? We just, we, we've got to take the knowledge, take the information, what we understand, and then we take an action with that. So James's letter here is not just to be hearers of the word, but he says later to be doers of the word, right? There's that third part that we take action. God, what would you have me do? How can I lay myself down? How can I submit myself in this trial to be built up into more and more of the attributes of Christ in my life? And again, we see this in in, uh, Colossians 1, 9, and 10. These two scriptures... Uh, pull all three of these together. It says, so we have not stopped praying for you. This is Paul. We have not stopped praying for you since we first heard, heard about you. We've asked God to give you complete knowledge of his will to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always be, will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow and learn to know God better and better. Paul is telling the Colossians, the Colossians here, he, he, he was praying that they would have knowledge, know God's truth, and understanding, have a grasp of the implications and application of the truth, resulting in righteousness, practical application of the way that they should live. That's wisdom. That's what we need. And Paul is saying, in the midst of these trials, do you lack wisdom? And if you do, ask him. So the million dollar question is, is do I have an appetite for wisdom? Or in the midst of the trials, do I panic? Do I move into avoidance? Do I move into numbing out in some way? Do I go, oh, it's, it's going to be a rough day. I think I'll just call in and go play golf. No. Right? We engage this. We ask for Wisdom. God, what do you want here? What, are, what am I actually seeing here? Not just what's tangible, but kind of, God, what, what, really what are the foundations of all of this that I'm dealing with? Uh, anyone ever been in an argument and the, you very quickly get out of that argument? It's no longer about the argument. It's about how you responded. Well, you, you talked to me mean when you responded to me. It's no longer about the, the thing. It's about the, um, the, the, it gets down to the heart of the matter. We've got to get into that with the Lord. We need wisdom to see what's really at play here 
to get down to the heart of the matter. Otherwise, we're constantly just putting out fires, right? We got to get out of the, the fire extinguishing business and get into wisdom and see what God's doing and start engaging that. So we need that. We have to have an appetite for that. God, I need wisdom. We live in a world where we can be very wise in our own eyes. God, we don't need man's wisdom. We need your wisdom, right? All this is smoke and mirrors. It's a lot of stuff. What's the, what's the core of this? Where, where are you in the midst of this, God? Where do I really need to deal with this? What are you really wanting to build in me? So in closing, I, I, I want to ask the, just that question. Do we, a couple of questions here. One, do I have an appetite for, uh, for trials? I know it's a, it's a goofy question, but you know, the thing is, is that we have to have an appetite for them. We have to embrace them. We have to accept them, right? Or can we just bury our heads in the sand and say, hey, this is the, this is the church bubble and things only go perfect over here. Or I'm going to leave this church because it's not perfect over here. I'm still looking for that perfect church or that perfect spouse or that perfect friendship or that perfect something. Or can I embrace an appetite for trials knowing that that trial is, there's something that God's building in me and that's, there's a steadfastness that he's building in me. Do I have an appetite for steadfastness? Is there a strength that I, that I make myself available and I submit to him for him to build something in me. Do I want that? Because there is, is there an aspiration for me to want to be complete, perfect in these things in my relationship with him that I can lean on him and he can trust in me. I was in an environment somewhere here a couple of days ago, maybe Chuck, maybe it was you and I talking about this place where I would used to say I want to live kind of that sweet spot. I didn't want to, live as a heathen and split hell wide open, but I didn't want to live such a righteous life that, that God would say, have you considered my servant Johnny like he did Job? I wanted to live just kind of in that, just kind of going through life, you know, so, so smoothly. I not any storms um, or crazy storms, but as I've engaged this with, with James and, other, and some of Paul's writings, there is this place in me that I say, God, I, I want that. I don't necessarily want the trial, but I want the character that comes from the trial. I want the strength that is there. I want the relationship with, it, with you that comes through seeing you. God, God, you seeing me through these situations over and over again. That when I get to heaven and I've said, when I get there, I want to go, I want to go, go talk to Paul. I've got some questions I want to ask Paul. I want to, ask, I want to talk to Lazarus. God, Lazarus, what was it like to, to die under the old covenant and die under the new covenant, right? Because Lazarus had both of those. So, it's a goofy question. But I, and then this thing sparked inside of me was, hey, when I get there, I want Paul to run up to me and go, hey, what was it like in the 21st century? You were doing what we were doing in the first century of this thing. Do I, can we, can we embrace that? And I believe that we can. I believe that we're called to. I believe that we're invited to. James didn't say here there was a plan B if you didn't like plan A. Well, I'm going to take the no trial plan. Thank you. It's not there. It's not available to us. So this is what we've signed up for. I think we should embrace it. And not just embrace it. I think we should herald it, right? Because all this comes back to that great commission, to know him, 
who he is, not who I want him to be. I want to be the God that always picks up my tab, who takes the, makes the boo-boo go away, comforts me and makes it easy for me. No, I want to partner with him. I don't want him to build these things in me. And I want to know him. And then when I share him with my neighbor, I want to be able to, with confidence, tell them the truth. I'm not just telling you God could do this. I'm telling you, I've seen God do this over and over again. I've seen him restore marriages. I've seen him heal sick. Right? I've seen him do these things. I've seen him make peace when there's been controversy and, and challenge. I've seen him soften hearts. That's, that's what we have. That's the hope that we have, right? That's the hope that we walk around in. We live in a world, we're spoiled to, to this relationship with Christ where when, we, when we're hurting, we get to go run to him, right? We, we don't, not everyone has this. And when we engage our neighborhood, when we engage our community with the hope, the faith that we have, will we live it in such a way that people will say, hey, there's something different about you. COVID's going on, but you seem to have joy in the midst of it. The economy's turning down, but you're, you're, you're still functioning. There, there's still joy and laughter and peace in your life. Yeah, man, I'm glad you asked. Can we do that? Will we do that? Why? Because we're passionate about what he's passionate about. He didn't redeem the animals. He didn't redeem anything of the other five days of creation. He redeemed mankind. Right? And he could have redeemed mankind in any... I'm sure, it's unfathomable all the ways that he could have chosen to redeem mankind. But he, he came as a man. And he, right, he submitted himself to man. And he, he died on a cross. And he died and he, he rose again. Right? That's what he did for us. Because we couldn't do it for us. And that God, that Jesus that James says, and I, I will hear, I'm to confess to, my Lord and James's Lord, he's worth it. That we would love what Jesus loves, that we would take the trials and let's be strengthened in what he's called us to be strengthened in because someone, someone's, in our community, someone in our circle needs us to have the strength of character, the strength of relationship, the completeness to introduce them and then disciple them into to relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what, as Cornell and I engage in his office, as I engage men in counseling, that's what we're after. As we get with our ministry leaders, that's our aim. That's the, that's the heart of New Covenant. And I just want to communicate to you guys, that's what we're inviting you to, that this is who we are, this is what we're about. So would you say with me, yes, I'm signing up for that, or yes, I know that's what I've signed up for. And yes, I'm willing to re-engage that. I want that. I will celebrate the trials. I, want, I, I don't like getting up and going to the gym, but I'm going to get up and go because somebody needs the strength that I'm going to be building today. I'm going to walk through the trials because somebody, whether it's my wife and my kids, whether it's my community, my neighbor, somebody needs this strength, this relationship that I'm growing in in Jesus Christ.
So that's my word for us today. <laughs> that's uh, what I hope we will take with us, that we will eat on it today. We'll feed on it this week, get back into James. There's, that's only 12 or eight verses of James. There's four, there's four chapters there of just great content that if we'll engage it, we'll, it, it literally it will challenge us to change us. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna pray. That's what, that's what we do at the end of service. Heavenly Father, I just come before you, Lord. I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for, um, I thank you for James. I thank you for your word in the book of James that challenges us. Father, I know it challenges me. Father, I ask that you would just let that go down just to the the core of his father. And Father, that you would open our eyes to see where you are in the midst of our trials. That you're doing incredible things in us, Father. And they're for our good, even when they're not for our pleasure. Father, continue the great work that you've begun in us, Father. Father, help us to continue, remind us to continue to come to you for wisdom when we don't know what to do. Father, give us an appetite for the steadfast. Give us an appetite for perfection in our relationship with you, Father. That we can walk this out wholly and completely, Father. And Father, I ask that you would be with our our, our family here, Father, our new covenant family. Father, as uh, as we leave here today, So, Father, you would lead us in the ways that we should go. Father, you would be glorified and edified in our conversations as we're in the car. Father, as we go have lunch and as we fellowship, Father, that you would would be pleased, Father, with, uh, with our comings and our goings, Father. That, Father, we would step out of being, of numbing out and, and step out of avoidance. Father, we would engage and re-engage and re-engage and re-engage again. The trials of our life, Father. Father, I ask you would be with the Turners, Father, as they, they, they walk down this, this road this next week of, uh, of the loss of their mother and mother-in-law. Lord, I ask that you would be with Cornell and Dale as they, as they travel back. And Father, all that you're, that you're doing in them, Father, the, the fire that's in, and then that's in Dale's and Cornell's belly as I was talking to them yesterday, Father, that, that they would bring that back, Father. It was just a, a refreshing outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Father. Father, we need that right here in Stillwater. And Father, that here in this community, Father, in this church, that your name would be known and your name would be honored as great and holy and worthy. Father, that it would be acknowledged and, and so we would submit to that, Father. That, you're, that you're, you would be honored. Father, you would be lifted up. You would be acknowledged as the Lord of this house. And Father, all the little houses that are represented here, Father, our individual families that you, Father, would be represented as the Lord of our houses, 
the lords of our individual relationship with you, Father. Lord, I thank you for doing it. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.